All right, thank you so much, Kelly. And thanks all of you who are participating today in this webinar. So let me get started, um, talk a little bit about the organization that I work for. Um, it's called the Pennsylvania Health Law Project. We're, are, we are one of plans uh, <clears throat> statewide resource centers. We serve clients in all uh, Pennsylvania counties uh, <clears throat> and we provide technical assistance to legal service and legal aid programs throughout the state and uh, we may also co-counsel in some situations and in some cases we may actually accept referrals of clients to uh, our organization to undertake direct representation. Uh, we are a little different than other legal aid programs in that because we have a variety of different funding sources, we are actually able to serve clients irregardless of their income so long as the issue involves Medicaid-related health services. Uh, and that includes behavioral health services. It also includes in-home and community supports. Now, <clears throat> for today, I'm going to be discussing, of course, children's behavioral health services. Uh, I want to start by talking about why this is important, not just for clients or families who come to you specifically with a behavioral health issue, but for a, a wide variety of issues that you may see. I'm also going to talk briefly about services through school districts, intermediate units, and the county intellectual disability, developmental disability agencies, and then we'll get on to the main part, which is the Medicaid part. And there are several services in that section we'll discuss, and we'll also discuss uh, in addition to these specific services that Medicaid covers for children and youth, we will cover how to access those services and we will cover appeal rights if services are denied or terminated. So <clears throat> let's talk about why it's important to know about these issues and these services, uh, even if the client does not come to you specifically regarding child's behavioral health issues. Uh, <clears throat> I can tell you that um, frequently my clients, and I've had this personal experience, will relate issues regarding, uh, for example, loss of employment, uh, or <clears throat> they may be seeing utility shutoffs or evictions because they've lost a job. And one of the reasons that um, folks lose jobs is that they have a child with significant behavioral issues and that child may be in a preschool or in a regular school uh, and the school is calling them up and say you know Johnny's had a meltdown come pick him up uh, and so the parent leaves work and the next thing you know this happens repeatedly if the underlying issue isn't addressed and that parent loses their job and then this just cascades into a whole <clears throat> list of other issues for which they may be coming to you like an eviction or a mortgage foreclosure, uh, <clears throat> uh, utility shutoff, but one of the underlying reasons for that may well be the child's behavioral issues. So if those issues are not addressed, this cycle may well repeat. 
Certainly, <clears throat> these kind of behavioral issues will undermine the child's ability to obtain uh, a good education, which will affect them later in life. It can have impact in terms of custody, uh, where the parents are separated or divorced and the child's acting out in with uh, the custodial parent. The other, other parent is filing for custody blaming the custodial parent for their failure to properly parent the child. Um, this can also result in loss of housing, not just for non-payment, uh, <clears throat> but also if the child acts up, uh, particularly if the child is, is destroying um, the apartment, breaking windows, knocking holes in walls, and this certainly does happen to kids with behavioral health issues. And so you see an eviction for that reason, even if the family is paid up in rent. Um, the other problem is uh, children who are physically aggressive uh, can present a danger um, to parents and to other siblings, particularly younger siblings. And uh, if this goes on long enough, the other issue can be the child will become involved in the juvenile justice system. So you really <clears throat> do need to think beyond the specific issue that the family may be coming to you about to see are there underlying child behavioral issues as well. And even though you may not do the exact, uh, do the direct representation, um, you should be aware of referrals to make and have some idea how this system works to know where the right um, referrals are. So <clears throat> let me talk briefly about school districts because they are an important source of behavioral health for kids who are in school because quite honestly, if a child is school age, they should be spending a, significantly, a significant portion of their waking hours in school. And under both state and federal law, school districts are responsible to provide behavioral health services when they are needed to enable the child to participate in and benefit from the school district's educational programming. So in those situations, the, the parent should not accept this frequent calling saying, Johnny's had a meltdown, come pick him up, and rather instead insist that the school district develop a behavioral plan to address those because it's really the school district's responsibility while the child's in school to do that and thereby reducing the risk of the parent losing their job. So the way this is started is by something called a multidisciplinary evaluation. Family can request that if the child is identified as qualifying for special education, the parent is entitled to work with the school district in developing an IEP or individual education plan, which should include a behavioral support plan. That plan in turn sets out what services the school district is responsible to provide. Now, one downside of uh, working with school districts is that the families do not have a free choice of behavioral health providers for those services that are provided by the school district pursuant to an IEP, an individual education plan. School districts typically use their own staff where they may contract with an agency to provide that. Uh, if there is an issue uh, with 
the services that the school district is offering or the services that they will agree to in the IEP, uh, the parent or the guardian may need to appeal and there is a process for appealing that there's a first step called mediation and if that doesn't work there's something called due process those of you who have done a DHS fair hearings uh, it is somewhat similar although it's actually more formal than than a DHS fair hearing uh, and typically uh, folks need outside counsel for that um, <clears throat> behavioral health services in school can also be provided by agencies funded through medical assistance, which is where I'm going to spend the bulk of this presentation. So you can have both services provided by the school district and services provided by outside behavioral health agencies, which are funded through medical assistance, primarily through these managed care organizations under a program called Health Choices. Now, the school districts and medical assistants both have legal obligations to provide necessary behavioral supports to children who are school age, but <clears throat> those are um, their separate obligations so that the fact that the school district has an obligation does not preclude or let the managed care organization under Medicaid off the hook. They both have to provide that. Now, <clears throat> They don't have to provide the same thing at the same time, but they both have to provide adequate services and they should coordinate those services. Um, if the child has medical assistance and those services are being provided <coughs> in uh, school, the family has a greater choice of providers to serve the child in school through the medical assistance we call health choices program than they would under the school district. However, school districts do have the legal right to refuse to allow an outside agency from providing behavioral health services in the classroom or in the school. Uh, in that case, however, the school district still remains obligated to provide those behavioral health services as are specified in the child's IEP, the behavioral support plan. Um, <clears throat> school districts, though, are not responsible for providing behavior supports at home or in other settings which are not part of the, the child's educational program. In some cases, school districts have actually partially funded residential placements for children who have significant complex needs. Uh, that is usually done in, in conjunction by what we call braiding of the funding with the health choices, uh, behavioral health services. Preschool kids are also eligible for behavioral health services. Uh, <clears throat> uh, children three and up are eligible for those services under early intervention, uh, which is provided by uh, usually by an agency called an intermediate unit or by a contractor for the school. And under three, they may also be entitled to behavioral supports through a different early intervention program, typically administered by the county intellectual or developmental disabilities agency. Okay, <clears throat> now understand that you're probably not doing school 
cases, uh, <clears throat> but you should know enough about that to know when to make the referrals. These are the organizations we make referrals to. The first is called the Consult Line. It is part of the State Department of Education. See the number there, 1-800-879-2301. <clears throat> there is also a, a Spanish version of the Consult Line, and that's one 983 seven six two seven and then two nonprofit advocacy organizations that I recommend the Peel Center at one eight six six nine five zero ten forty uh peelcenter.org and disability rights of Pennsylvania one eight hundred six nine two seven four four three okay um I don't know Kelly, if there's any questions on the school services yet. Hello? Okay, I'm not hearing anything. I'm sorry, David, what was the question? <laughs> Are there any questions on what I've done so far on the school services? It's kind of a natural. No, we haven't received any questions. Okay, so let's go on to the, the medical assistance part. And <clears throat> medical assistance does cover a wide variety of services, including behavioral health services for children and youth under age 21. And, the age 21 is the cutoff because of a federal law that we call EPSDT. Uh, the services that are provided under EPSDT can be provided in, a, in an office setting, typically a, a therapist or psychologist's office. But in, in fact, most of the services under medical assistance for children and youth are, are not provided in an office. They're usually provided in the child's home or in the school or community or in a residential setting. Another thing to know is that children with significant behavioral challenges, um, and that includes children on the autism spectrum where, they, where their challenges are um, evidenced by significant behaviors, can qualify for medical assistance regardless of the parent's income. So for example, if you're seeing uh, a, a family and it appears that the family may not be eligible for medical assistance but have a child with significant behavioral issues, that child may be eligible for medical assistance and all of the behavioral health services that are provided thereunder <clears throat> under a special category we call the PH95. Uh, children who have other health insurance can also qualify for medical assistance uh, because medical assistance will cover some services, private insurance will not, except in case of CHIP, if the child's on CHIP, they, don't, they cannot qualify for medical assistance unless they are transferred from CHIP to medical assistance. For most kids, their behavioral health services are covered through what's called a behavioral health managed care organization that serves their county. Now they don't have a choice of the managed care organization for behavioral health, unlike under health choices for medical services and physical health, where the family does have a choice 
between typically three or more uh, managed care organizations. Behavioral health, there's just one organization that serves uh, that particular county. So <clears throat> talking about the services that are available. Probably the most common service <clears throat> is what your clients would probably call wraparound. The technical name is behavioral health rehabilitation services. So if you're dealing with an agency, they'll probably call it BHRS. <clears throat> These are services that are provided in the home, in the community, and in school, not in an office. And they are typically provided a one-on-one -on -one basis. So there would be a, an individual who will be working with the child, either home, community, or school. But in addition to that, because the goal of this BHRS or wraparound is to transfer skills, that is the skills necessary to deal with a child's challenging behaviors, and transfer those skills from the mental health professional who's working with the child to the family and to other individuals who are working directly with the child, such as teachers, if it's in school, the parent or guardian or other adult like a teacher must be present at the same time that the mental health professional is working with the child. So this BHRS or wraparound cannot be used to provide staffing when the child is home alone. So that does present an issue in terms, say for example, of safety. If you have a child who will elope, uh, say parent works, child comes home before the parent gets home, uh, that that child is prone to eloping, uh, but may have behaviors that are too significant to hire a babysitter. Um, in that situation, unfortunately, this BHRS cannot serve unless there is some other adult in the home that is providing care for that child. So <clears throat> in terms of the staff that that provide these services. The most common staff, what's called the TSS, stands for Therapeutic Staff Support. So this TSS <clears throat> provides the one-on-one -on -one intervention, and they're the one that's usually there in the home, in the school, uh, at daycare, in a community-based program, and it's most common <clears throat> service under wraparound or BHRS. The individual has to have a bachelor's degree in certain fields or an associate's degree with three years experience. <clears throat> now going up the food chain is the mobile therapist. This is someone who has a master's level mental health degree plus one year experience. They supervise the TSS. They also provide some direct behavioral interventions, um, but they do that because it's called mobile. They do that in a setting other than the provider agency or office. David, the, if I could interrupt you here for a second. Yeah. I'm launching right now the first of the CLE polls. Any attorneys that are participating, if you could please respond to the poll right now, um, you'll have two minutes to do so. And you can go ahead again, David. Thank you. Sure. Okay. And then at the top of the food chain is the BSC, or Behavior Specialist consultant. And uh, this is the individual who does assessments, who uh, designs 
the, the program and monitors the ongoing treatment program rather than doing direct therapy in most cases. Um, this individual must be a licensed psychologist or a master's level clinician supervised by a licensed psychologist. Okay, so going just to recap, most common service, wraparound or BHRS. The TSS is your most common um, staff person who's doing most of the one-on-one. -on -one. The mobile therapist is your next level up, supervises the TSS and provides some one-on-one uh, -on -one, um, therapy with the child. And then the, the top is the BSC, who is your master level person or licensed psychologist who's kind of overseeing this, developing, is consulting, is, is doing assessments, um, and uh, over uh, reviewing the treatment plan. Okay, now we're going to move on to a, a different um, model of uh, behavioral health services. And this has become really big as the number of children who are diagnosed, who have been diagnosed uh, on the autism spectrum has literally exploded. This particular family of treatment modalities, because it's not just one, uh, called ABA, has uh, really become the preeminent behavioral approach for children on the autism spectrum. And that's because it's what we call evidence-based. In other words, there have been studies done in um, peer-reviewed journals that indicate that this is an effective, or these, these are effective modalities in addressing behavioral issues uh, for children on the autism spectrum. Um, and it doesn't just address behaviors, it also addresses skills such as uh, social interaction, uh, communication, uh, and what we call adaptive functioning. <clears throat> now, the, it is used to reduce the presence of maladaptive or restricted behaviors impairments in communication, limits in social interactions, or inability to form relationships with peers so that the child or adolescent can achieve or maintain the skills needed for maximum functional capacity. Now, this definition here actually comes out of a state statute. So these services, Unlike BHR, excuse me, unlike wraparound BHRS, can be used not just for disruptive behaviors, but also to address skills that limit the child's ability to um, interact with peers and to take part of community activities, such as toilet training. And I'm not talking about toilet training for a two-year-old here. I'm talking about a toilet training for an eight or 10-year-old and, and a, a child who physically is able to do it, but needs to be trained <clears throat> through a, a, a very lengthy process how to, to actually understand when they need to go to the bathroom and the whole step-by-step. -step. And that's part of what ABA does. Uh, it can also be used in terms of helping the child dress him or herself or um, to, um, to cut up their food and, and 
so there's a number of, of skills that are also involved in ABA. And what's important here is if the child qualifies for ABA under medical assistance, the intervention includes not just the disruptive behaviors, but also the development of these skills. Uh, the other important point is that the child or adolescent does not have to have disruptive behaviors or what is listed in the, the bulletin as externalizing or negative behaviors in order for ABA to be medically necessary. So a, typically for BHRS, the child has to be acting out, has to have disruptive behaviors. For ABA, you could have a child who's just sitting in a corner uh, who has no interaction with peers or other adults uh, who, who rarely speaks. Um, and that child may well qualify for ABA um, because the criteria are different than they are for BHRS or wraparound. Um, <clears throat> as a result of a lawsuit brought by Disability Rights of PA called Sunny O versus Dallas, these ABA interventions are now covered by medical assistance. Now, they are billed as TSS and BSC services that I mentioned before. However, the, uh, the behavior specialist consultants who provide the ABA for children on the autism spectrum must have a special license called behavior specialist license under a particular state law called Act 62 or the Autism Insurance Act or have certain other licenses. Uh, the TSS, if they're doing ABA, also have to have special training in order to do ABA. Now, the Department of Human Services, who um, administers the medical assistance program, has published proposed regulations uh, back uh, a year ago, 2000, July 2018, that formally recognize ABA as a distinct service and set out a number of specific um, qualifications for staff. Uh, <coughs> The, um, there was a comment period following those comments. We expect the state to submit the final version of these regulations to a um, state commission that reviews all state regulations called the Independent Regulatory Review Commission. And we expect that in the, in the coming months, <clears throat> these regulations will make significant changes in the current education, training, and supervision requirements for those staff that are providing ABA, and the staff will actually have new categories, new names, so the things I've told you before are what's in effect now, but very likely um, six months from now, we're gonna see some significant changes in terms of ABA services. Another service which is paid for by medical assistance, <clears throat> they call it STAP, Summer Therapeutic Activities Programs, your clients would probably call it therapeutic summer camps. And <clears throat> these provide a range of age-appropriate specialized therapies um, in a summer camp model, but there has to be an actual therapeutic component to it. Um, and they usually use uh, some kind of group therapy as part of 
the uh, the camp activities so you can have some part of it which will be recreational like swimming and the like but they do have therapeutic components in that uh, it's generally limited to about three hours a day and it is not for preschool children because it's again not just play it really does involve therapy uh, there are specific providers who do this they have to be have a license with the state um, for this service and they must submit a description of how they're going to provide the therapy as part of the camp activities uh, that is submitted to the state office of mental health who then reviews it and uh, then if they approve the camp can begin providing those services during the summer now there's another completely different service. <clears throat> this is different than a wraparound or BHRS. It's called family-based services. Um, and this is a service that is provided by a team. So with the wraparound, that's usually that one-on-one, -on -one, the TSS who's coming out, and once in a while the mobile therapist will be there. But <clears throat> family-based is a, a, a team uh, <clears throat> with two child mental health professionals involved. And the education and training for those team members are higher than those for the TSS. So this is a, a higher level of service than, than BHRS. <clears throat> and it includes home therapy, casework services, family support services, and it also includes a crisis stabilization component 24-7 so that families who have a child enrolled in family-based services are given a phone number for uh, with the agency where they can call so that someone can actually come out and try to address crises if they occur um, during uh, off hours. Um, it's available to children who are at risk for out-of-home placement. Um, it's also used as a step down for children who are returning from their family following an out-of-home placement, such as in a residential treatment facility. The, um, this service, because it's a team and it has a different model, it's not solely a skill transference, so that in this case, <clears throat> The, the team, one of the members of the team can be working alone with the child without a parent or other caregiver adult being present. And then the second team member actually can work with family members, siblings or parents, grandparents, guardians separately from the child. And then usually they come together for kind of a, a, a group session. But the point is that they this model can address family issues separately from dealing directly with the child, unlike BHRS, where the child has to be present during all of the direct services. Another part of the family-based services is that it can provide out-of-home respite during a family crisis. So, and these crises do occur. In that situation, it is provides a less restrictive option 
than sending that child to a, a, a psych hospital or uh, to a residential treatment facility. It's a temporary situation where the child can go into what is essentially a therapeutic foster home for a temporary uh, time, or they can also be sent to a psychiatric facility on a temporary basis, uh, but still ha have the, the family-based service for when they return. Okay, next, and now we're going up in terms of intensity of services, partial hospitalization. Now, <clears throat> partial hospitalization, unlike family base or wraparound, is not done in the child's home or in the child's uh, natural school. It is in a segregated setting, meaning that it is in a setting where all of the children there are receiving these mental health services. So it is more restrictive than uh, wraparound or family-based, <clears throat> but it is less restrictive than residential programs I'll get to in a minute because the child returns home uh, typically each evening. It's used as a step down for children leaving residential placement or to avoid residential placement. Um, it, it does... <sighs> It, it does present a problem in that the child is taken out of the school, at least for a significant part of the day. So it can be problematic in terms of their education. There still is a responsibility of the school district to provide some educational program through the partial hospitalization, but that is problematic. There's usually group therapy that's involved, uh, but everything takes place within this one setting. Okay, residential programs, uh, there are, uh, moving up to in more restrictive, what we call the RTFs, residential treatment facilities, and these are facilities where the child will live night and day. They may come home on weekends, but, but they're there during most of the time. Uh, and there is uh, group therapy. There are psychologists there who do individual therapy. Um, and there, these are larger facilities. They may not be located near where the child's family lives, so that can be a problem. Um, <clears throat> they are uh, less restrictive than a psych hospital in that the wards are not locked. So then at the top of the chain, in terms of restrictiveness, the psychiatric hospital. And these can and often do uh, include locked wards. Uh, and these are your typical mental hospitals with units specifically for, for children and youth. Um, the emphasis is to try to keep these stays short to address crises and then step down either to an RTF or to a partial hospitalization or perhaps to family-based to a less intensive setting. Now, the services are provided through these managed care organizations that I mentioned before. 
And these managed care organizations called behavioral health managed care organizations, or you may hear the acronym BIMCOs, they receive a flat rate per child for the services provided. Because it's a flat rate and not based specifically on how much service a child actually receives, they may at the end of the year have a little extra money left over, um, excess revenue, which would we might consider profit. The state requires that excess revenue above a certain limit be reinvested by the behavioral health managed care organization into additional behavioral health programs. And the reason why I mention this is because what you'll see is the services that a particular behavioral health managed care organization will offer to children and youth may include services that go beyond the particular services that I have already spelled out. The, the services that I've discussed up to here are those services which are required of all the behavioral health managed care organizations. They must provide that full range. But in addition, they can use this extra money, which are called reinvestment dollars or reinvestment funds to set up demonstration projects, pilot projects, or special projects uh, that address particular populations. So it might be kids in the juvenile justice system or kids on the autism spectrum or whatever. Um, and it might be for after school programs or some other kind of summer program. Uh, it's a variety of different things. So the idea is to use these funds in a creative way to fill identified gaps to test new innovative treatment approaches and develop cost-effective alternatives to traditional services. <clears throat> um, I'll give you an example in Philadelphia Community Behavioral Health, which is the Behavioral Health Managed Care Organization for Philly, uh, <clears throat> is using some of their reinvestment dollars to actually pay parents to become navigators to assist other families in navigating the behavioral health system, both for kids with, with generalized behavioral issues and kids on the autism spectrum. Um, they can also be used to fund some proprietary therapies known as evidence-based therapies. Um, these are therapies which when I say proprietary, there is some organization that basically has established this as their own model, and then you actually have to purchase the training. Um, and, and so there are a number of these. Um, one is called high fidelity wraparound, which is completely different than our, what we call wraparound. So these are ways that the reinvestment dollars can be used and um, as I said, because the MCOs, each one decides what they're going to use the reinvestment dollars for, uh, subject to state approval, they will vary from uh, behavioral health MCO to uh, behavioral health MCO. Ooh, there we go. Should have taken that out. Okay. Um, is there any questions about 
this set of services? Hey, David, it's Kelly. Um, you must be doing such a fantastic presentation that we still don't have any questions. <laughs> well, <laughs> that or everybody's asleep after lunch. But you better wake up for the next test, folks, or you won't get That's your right. <laughs> Okay. So if you do have questions, type them in the chat box. Okay. So anyway, now we've talked about uh, the variety of services that are available to children and youth under the age of 21. And I do want to specify, this is just for children and youth under 21 because of this EPSDT provision. Once they hit 21, these services end by and large. Now, the psych hospitalization and partial hospitalization, those are covered for adults as well. But things like the wraparound, BHRS, family-based therapy, <clears throat> those are not covered for anyone 21 and older. And it really cuts off right on your birthday. If you were receiving the wraparound and you had a TSS come into the home uh, on your 21st birthday, the TSS stops showing up. That's the end of it. Then you have to go into the adult system, which has different services, and that's well beyond the scope of this presentation today. All right, so how does a family go about accessing all these services that I talked about? Again, it goes through the Behavioral Health Managed Care Organization. Uh, for most children, there are a few children who are in a program called the Health Insurance Premium Payment Program, also called HIP, that don't go through the managed care, but the vast majority of the kids you will see uh, will be going through the Behavioral Health Managed Care organization. Um, this organization, they enroll the service providers, and they're the ones who determine the type of behavioral intervention that will be covered and the amount of that behavioral intervention. As I mentioned before, the family does not get to choose their child's behavioral health MCO. They're assigned to one on the basis of the child's county of residence. Um, there's a link there where you can see the list of <clears throat> behavioral health managed care organizations and the counties they cover. There's only five, uh, and the list shows which counties they cover. So the first step is, for at least for most services, will be the psych eval. And this is a psychiatric or more typically a psychological evaluation. The family uh, obtains that typically from a licensed psychologist, and they can get a list of providers who are enrolled in that behavioral health managed care organization. In order to, to get a psych eval, you need to use one of the psychologists who is working for an agency <clears throat> who is enrolled in that managed care organization or has a contract with them. Another term for it is in-network. So you get this list and it, the family can contact different agencies to see who is available to do the psyche eval. The, uh, if we're looking at a residential placement, as I mentioned, the residential treatment facility, uh, 
um, or, or the psych hospital, that can only be done by a psychiatrist. However, for the rest of the services, those are typically, the evals are typically done by a psychologist. <clears throat> the psych eval is, that does require a face-to-face -face interview, typically in a psychologist's office, and that is paid for separately by the, the managed care organization. It provides information about the child's strengths and needs, and then the psych eval, the psychologist at the end of the evaluation will make recommendations regarding the type, amount uh, of services, and the location where those services will be provided. Because again, most of the services children receive <clears throat> under medical assistance for behavioral health are provided in the home or in the school or in the community, not in an office. But the psych eval has to specify, is this going to be provided at home or in school or at both? Um, some counties, including Philadelphia and Chester, require comprehensive evaluations, which are done by, oh, I cut that off, selected agencies. Um, in those situations, the agency that provide, that performs the comprehensive eval may not be permitted to provide the ongoing services to avoid conflict of interest. So, you have the psych eval that makes recommendations. The next step is that psych eval it then goes to a typically a master's level behavioral health professional working for a provider agency, a treatment agency, to develop the treatment plan. And the the treatment plan uh, is should have input from the family, um, and then the master's level um, therapist submits that treatment plan along with a psych eval, and there are some other documents that go along with this. There's a whole packet, and there, um, there had been what are called interagency service planning team meetings. Um, those will likely be discontinued soon, but those were meetings where the service provider gets together with the family and other child-serving agencies to discuss the treatment plan. And after that, anyway, it's submitted to the Behavioral Health Managed Care Organization. <clears throat> the plan is very specific about which of the services, if it's this wraparound, is it going to be TSS, mobile therapy, BSC, and how many hours of each or if it's family-based, that's done differently. Um, and also, where are the services going to take place? If they're going to be in the home, how many hours in the home? If they're going to be in school, how many hours in school? That all has to be specified in the treatment plan. And it, it goes into the particular treatment modality that is supposed to be used uh, by the staff who are working directly with the child. There's also a request for a specific number of months of authorization so that 
the managed care organization will know how long they are being asked to fund this particular service. Typically, the wraparound or BHRS um, authorizations that are requested are six months, um, although in some cases, the managed care organization may only approve a shorter period of time. For children who have a diagnosis of autism, <clears throat> the uh, provider can request an authorization that extends for 12 months. Uh, if the request is for a residential uh, treatment facility, those are often done even shorter than that, um, 90 days or less. If the managed care organization approves the services as requested in the amount requested, then the provider can start those services as soon as they find qualified staff to assign to provide that service to the child. And again, because this is, a, particularly the wraparound, is a one-on-one -on -one situation, it's not like there's a whole pool of staff out there who can come and serve that child. Uh, and in many cases, the providers do not have enough qualified staff even after the authorization request has been approved to staff the services that have now been authorized. So unfortunately, we see kids waiting in some cases months before they finally get a TSS who can serve them. So that's an ongoing issue, and we're certainly interested in hearing about that if you run into that problem. There's no magic wand to fix it. It's going to take some systemic advocacy to address that. Now, <clears throat> although the requests are for a finite amount of time, the provider agency can request a continuation of treatment um, after the approved authorization period expires. And in fact, the request should be made prior to the expiration. So to do that, the service provider needs to get a new psych eval done, submit those to the managed care organization for review, consider whether there's any goals that need to be changed, and in many cases, looking at reducing services. So one of the big issues we see with wraparound is what's called titration, where the managed care organization ratchets down the hours of service over time. Um, and they'll consider whether there are less restrictive alternatives, uh, and if so, they may not authorize what was requested, but offer a less restrictive alternative. David, if I could just interrupt you for the last right time, I'm going to launch the last poll. Attorneys that are requesting CLE credit for this webinar and your participation, please um, respond to the poll now. Thanks, David. Uh -huh. Feel free to go ahead. Okay. All right, so we're getting towards the end here. Uh, <clears throat> what to do if the managed care organization does not approve the specific service being requested or the amount of hours of that service or tries to what we call titrate or reduce those number of hours over time. And you have the right to appeal. The first level of the appeal is called a grievance. 
<clears throat> and that is an appeal to the Behavioral Health Managed Care Organization. The parent or guardian has 60 days from the date the denial notice is mailed to request a grievance that can be done uh, over the phone or in writing. However, <clears throat> if the child has already been receiving services, such as wraparound, and those services are, are a continuation of those services are being requested, uh, and the managed care organization denies that request or reduces the number of hours of, of service that are being requested, it's important that the family be advised to file their request for a grievance within 10 days of the date uh, of mailing of the notice, the termination notice, uh, <clears throat> in order to maintain the current level of service while their grievance appeal is pending. If it's a new service that's being requested or additional hours above what the child had already been receiving, while the family should certainly appeal, file the grievance, the filing of the grievance by itself does not ensure that the child receives the services being requested until and unless they win their grievance. So in that situation, there is a particular process called an expedited grievance that the family can request that <clears throat> will ensure that the managed care organization holds the grievance and decides the grievance within 48 hours of receipt of a certification from the child psychiatrist or psychologist stating that <clears throat> the child's uh, mental health or ability to maintain or regain maximum function would be placed in jeopardy if the child had to wait the full amount of time for a standard grievance, which is 30 days. The grievance is decided by a panel of three people, one of whom must be a psychologist or psychiatrist if residential treatment is requested, and another who's a consumer uh, or parent of a child enrolled in the plan. Uh, individuals who had any involvement in the decision from the managed care organization cannot serve as panel members. Uh, if the grievance is denied, the family can then appeal to the Department of Human Services, which is scheduled as something we call a fair hearing, uh, which is heard by a state administrative law judge from the DHS Bureau of Hearings and Appeals. Uh, this is very similar to appeals you would have, say, for SNAP or cash benefits or other uh, medical assistance benefits. <clears throat> If you run into that situation, we strongly recommend you and recommend that you contact us at the Health Law Project uh, for assistance in representing the child in a behavioral health grievance or fair hearing um, because uh, a couple of our, our staff folks have had a fair amount of experience in this and we can provide, I think, some helpful pointers in preparing for those appeals and actually um, presenting your case in front of a grievance panel or fair hearing. But they are somewhat specialized. And 
at that point, um, that's the end of my presentation. I think we made it just on time. I don't know if there's any last questions. Kelly? Um, we don't have any um, up to this point. Okay. Um, kind of audience members, if you have any questions for David, um, type them in the chat box now and hit send. Otherwise, we will be ready to end the webinar. Just give it a moment. Well, I'm not getting anything. Okay. So I'd like to thank you, David, for giving this presentation. Um, thank everybody for participating. And again, feel free to contact us if these questions come up. So I know they are kind of specialized, probably don't do a lot of this stuff, uh, but we're happy to, to provide advice and in some cases actually take on the case directly. And we, we do just have a question, will the PowerPoint be made available? You can actually don't download it right now in the chat box feature. Um, you should see the PowerPoint document in there. Just click on it and download it. Um, and I will let the meeting, I won't end it for a few more, a minute or so, so that you can download that if you'd like. And then we have a comment. Thanks. Thank you for the very nice presentation. And <laughs> somebody wrote, were you ever in the musical group known as Bread? <laughs> <laughs> now that's someone who's showing their age. <laughs> uh, <laughs> wow no sorry so yes but no questions that i see so, okay um with that we'll go ahead and end the webinar thanks a lot david and All everyone right. else have a great day thank you kelly bye now thanks bye-bye